The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is a live Clubland Q&A here on Stein Online. My name is Andrew Lawton, guest hosting for Mark, although I have to give honorable mention to Laura Rosen Cohen, my fellow Canadian and fellow Stein Online contributor for filling in for me as I was unable to. I'm like the worst vice president ever because I, like, when called upon, couldn't even discharge my duty. So it fell on Laura, who I believe after guest hosting twice has been promoted to senior guest host. So now, now I am guest hosting for the guest host for the guest host for... Mark, who calls himself a guest host. So if you can follow that, then you are going to be right at home over the next little while here as we take questions from Mark Stein Club members live around the world, anywhere where you are. And in keeping with true guest hosting tradition, it is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That makes it 7 a.m. on the Howland and Baker Islands, but uh, 7 a.m. Saturday on Wake Island, 9 a.m. back to Friday on Maui, and 1 p.m. in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, but 4.30 p.m. in Newfoundland and Labrador, making it, I believe, just after 8 p.m. in Belfast, 10 p.m. in Kampala, 4 a.m. Saturday morning in Tokyo, and 5 a.m. for all the early risers in Sydney, Australia. So if you missed your time there, uh, tune in perhaps on the next edition and we might get to it. We can't get to them all, but we do our best to try. I feel bad for uh, missing out on the Nepalese quarter hour time zones, but I try to leave some of the goods for Mark when he is back. It is great to be here. I I should say, I don't want to give anything away because there may be a, a question or two about this, but yesterday... I was watching in disbelief, except at the same time not really in disbelief at all, at seeing Joe Biden just completely throw out the pretense that he is the great unifier. If you didn't see it, uh, surely you've seen the images circulating on Twitter of him with this blood-red backdrop that, as one commentator said, it looked like the Soviets and the Nazis had a child who went into the stage lighting business. That was the color, that was the hue behind Joe Biden as he talked about all of these unifying presidential things about how uh, mega Republicans are the enemy of the state and Trump voters are killing democracy and all of that stuff. Well flanked by two Marines, the kind of thing Trump could never get away with. But as my good friend, the late Kathy Shadle said, you can't even make those comparisons. You can't even say, well, uh, you know, but when he said it, it was different. And because the whole thing can be summed up, as Kathy dearly said over and over again, by the axiom liberals 
it's different when they do it. So we will take your questions on Joe Biden. We will take your questions on, if you want to get into the CDC data earlier on, that came out yesterday, finally acknowledging the myocarditis risk in young boys that they wrote off as misinformation about a year ago. So it's that old thing that yesterday's misinformation is today's accepted fact by the state uh, bean counters. So take from that what you will. Uh, let's go to your questions, though. Chris writes, Hi, Andrew. When are Canadian voters going to wise up and figure out that warm is good and cold is bad? Snowbirds will have a very hard time getting down to Florida in the winter <laughs> using electric vehicles. Yeah, I don't know if you need to recharge uh, when you're driving from Ontario to Florida in Kentucky or Tennessee or even like rural Ohio, for that matter, how many charging statements there are. Uh, charging stations, rather. But uh, Chris's question is a very good one here. When are Canadian voters going to wise up? I mean, that I can just sum up by saying never. And then when you get to the warming aspect, Canada, if you are a student of history, you'll know when the Seven Years' War ended, uh, Britain and France had basically decided whether uh, one of them would get Canada and the other would get Guadalupe, or Guadalupe, rather. And Canada got, uh, of course, the distinct honor of being taken by the British. And, I mean, I, I still think that might have been regrettable in retrospect, but <laughs> that's, a sh that's a topic for another show. If we do, like, the 300 years ago show, uh, we can delve into the end of the Seven Years' War, and we can talk about Montcalm and Wolfe on the battles of the Plains of the Abraham and all of that. But I think that there is something quite interesting here in, in that Canada is a nation that is to the point of satire, dominated by coldness it is just a, a cold cold country the winters are long the winters are are very humid which makes it feel even colder and you get to parts of the country that are just covered in darkness especially in the north for uh, huge huge parts of the day for stretches of the year because they just don't have sunlight and then conversely in the summer months they get you know stretches of sunlight and, and no darkness but all of this is to say that Canadians flock to warm temperatures because that is the great respite you can get from a Canadian winter is going down to Florida. We th There was talk years ago of it was one Canadian member of Parliament in particular was really pushing this. He wanted to have Turks and Caicos. Uh, some I don't know if it was like a province he wanted or just some overseas territory, but but he really thought he could get uh, Britain to give Turks and Caicos to Canada for some reason, and this became like his. <laughs> he he never really got anywhere on it. I was all I I didn't really feel like Canada should be a colonial power, but I would have taken having like a a, a direct line into somewhere in the Caribbean because as a Canadian that would be quite nice. I mean I'm relatively far south in Canada. And you don't want to go sunbathing in, in my part of the country. So Can Canadians do flock overwhelmingly to warmer temperatures. And now that the government we have has decided to make the top threat to the existence of the country climate change, they are forgetting just how large the Canadian diaspora is in Florida and in Arizona and increasingly in Mexico. And a lot of people were climate refugees down in these places. In the last two and a half years, there's been an increasing surge in COVID refugees, people fleeing to these parts of the world to, uh, just to get away from all of the COVID policy in Canada. So I think that Canadians are probably going to continue to be complacent there. I mean, the old line that I, I may have shared 
in a previous thing, uh, when I've been anywhere else in the world, whether it's been in Florida or in Europe, and you see people wearing a mask, more often than not, they're Canadian tourists. So Canadians are doing what Americans in Texas and Florida and all that always complain about uh, Democrats from California and New York doing, which is going to places that are a lot better, but bringing all of their annoying eccentricities and uh, traits there. And I th think that's the problem of Canada and Canadians going to Florida is that they don't actually want to live the Florida life in what it means to be a Floridian. They want to bring their uh, Canadian lifestyle there and, and just happen to enjoy warm weather, which I don't think is particularly right. I'm just going to take a quick sip of water here and then go on to our next question. This is from Elisa, who writes, should we tell Extinction Rebellion that superglue is derived from petroleum? So if you aren't familiar, first off, I'm very, very envious of you, but Extinction Rebellion is this large, like, it's basically Antifa, but for the seals and the turtles. That's effectively what it is. It, it's this large, really radical uh, group that is dedicated to the fight against climate. And they say we use nonviolent direct action to persuade governments to act justly on the climate and ecological collapse. Uh, which, uh, you know what, collapse is already where we're headed anyway. But uh, six people who were part of Extinction Rebellion busted into the British Parliament yesterday... And there's the photo you can go uh, see circulating around there that is of a bunch of them uh, like holding hands, sitting around the speaker's chair. They're holding signs. One says, let the people decide. The other says, uh, citizens assembly now. Uh, one thing, interestingly enough, and I may be reading far too much into this, but I was looking at the photo that appeared. I think it was in a Reuters story. And the photo credit was Extinction Rebellion UK via Reuters. So I don't know if they've like just decided to start licensing their material out, which is a pretty good way to bankroll your protests, to just you know take your own pictures and then sell them to the media. But uh, they went in. This was, uh, actually, it might have even been yesterday. Uh, no, it might have even been this morning, not yesterday. Pardon me. And police have arrested six individuals. So uh, Parliament wasn't in session, but they glued themselves around the Speaker's chair. And that was the, the key detail, uh, which prompted the question from Elisa, which I think is a very good one. Should we tell them that superglue is derived from petroleum? But I go back to that line from Kathy Shadel about how they are uninterested in being uh, in, in it being pointed out how hypocritical they are. They're uninterested in anyone observing all of the things they do in their lives that require hydrocarbons, that require petroleum. They don't actually care about that. They don't care that the flags they're holding up appear to be plastic and not fabric, that most of the clothes they're wearing are probably synthetic fibers that have uh, in some way involved hydrocarbons and, and petroleum products. They don't care that uh, the things that they took to get to London, even if they took the bus, probably involved, and in fact, in, in the case of the bus and the train and all of that, did involve the things that they claim to deplore. They don't care. They don't care about that. And 
it was interesting. I mean, I was at the World Economic Forum in May. I was not like one of Klaus Schwab's invited guests. Don't worry. I was there covering it and, and talking to a lot of people. And there's the sort of amusing little sidebar you can get with the World Economic Forum as all these people gather around and say, well, uh, we need to do with less and transition away from oil and gas. And you can say, oh, but what about your private jets? And oh, what about all these limos? And oh, what about this fancy hotel room and all of that? I, and th there's a catharsis in that. I get it. I, it's amusing to say, oh, you know, he, 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 you're talking about using less and you took a private jet here, so I got you. But I mean, the, apart from just feeling good in the moment when you point that out or stumble upon it, it doesn't really matter because these people do not actually care. They aren't interested in the world that they claim they want. They want all of us to live in that world, but they've never pretended to live in that world because what they do is more important than what we do. And that's the biggest thing. I mean, David Suzuki who, if you're not familiar with him, he is this, he was like the Canadian Al Gore before Al Gore really cared about climate. He was this guy, he's a fruit fly biologist that just became this celebrity scientist pontificating on climate change. And he's done all the, the media tours in Canada and he had his own show and he was never as big outside of Canada. But he had at one point, I don't know if it's still the case, like five or six different houses. Some of them were remarkably close together and he would fly all over the place telling everyone else, that we needed to throw politicians in jail if they don't act on climate change. And, I mean, again, it was a big gotcha when people started pointing out, well, hey, how do you fly all this much? And why do you have all these houses? But, but at a certain point, it didn't matter. Because his view, and the view of all of his contemporaries, is that it's more important for them to fly to tell you not to do anything. Because when they fly to you, if they get 10 other people to stop flying, you know, it's in the end, they've still reduced emissions by 90% or something like that. So their view is that their life matters more than yours. And what they want to do matters much more than what you want to do. And it doesn't matter if you have a good reason. If you want to visit grandma, well, I'm sorry, you have to uh, get grandma to hop in a Tesla and meet you halfway, and you can just walk the rest of the distance because uh, otherwise you're going to kill the baby seal and that turtle's going to get another straw up its nose, and that's that. But they do not even pretend at this point that they're interested in living the austere, low-emission life that all of us are supposed to if they get their way. And, you know, the Extinction Rebellion people, I, some of them are probably true believers. I met a, a woman protesting at Davos who, who had legitimately walked for several days to get to where she went. And she rides her bike around. And I'm sure if I really pushed, I could find, you know, one or two things she does that involve uh, petroleum products. But she was actually practicing what she preaches. She was trying to live the life that she wants everyone else to live. Most of these people are not doing that. The vast majority aren't doing that. And it's time that we abandon the pretense, if any of us even hold on to it, abandon the pretense once and for all that it matters to point out this little bit of hypocrisy. It's fun. If it makes you feel better, do it. But it's not going to be the silver bullet because they're not operating in good faith. You just have to call a spade a spade and say these people do not matter. And what they want for us is dangerous. And it doesn't matter if they're prepared to go along with it or not. What they want is fundamentally wrong. They want to take human development. 
the thing that has increased the lifespans of people around the world, the thing that has ended hunger in places that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. They want to take human development and say this is a bad thing. And we need to roll it back. All of this development we've done to create light bulbs that will last years and years without going out. Nope. All of that is wrong. We don't want development. We don't want progress. And, I mean, the superglue thing is a great example of this. They, they don't realize how ubiquitous, or they don't care, how ubiquitous petroleum products are in our lives. That if one of them actually were interested in saying, I'm going to go through my life without, in, without engaging with any of these types of products, they, they wouldn't be able to do it. And if they did, they'd be so miserable that they would realize why other people aren't doing this and why they're constantly swimming against a current when they try to project this nonsense on the rest of us. Uh, George Pereira writes, Andrew, if civilizational collapse brought on by widespread famine, disease, plague, anarchy, Megan and Harry does. I think Megan and Harry are bringing on more than famine, disease and, and plague are. But I uh, will continue the question. Uh, does indeed happen. Yes, I take Klaus at his word. He wants this and destroys the entire world and over 8 billion people. Does the WAF really believe that their petite Reichsleiter's behinds will be untouched? Or are we watching Dr. Strangelove? The chosen few will be safe in their bunkers. There would be much time and little to do. Ha ha. Or are we watching the Black Adders, Baldrick? I have a cunning plan that cannot fail. Uh, I will say in a, in a few paragraphs, you've included some great references there, George. So thank you for the question. That, I think this actually follows very nicely on the Extinction Rebellion. One, which is, do they actually believe truly that if the life they get happens, or if the life they want happens, that they will be immune from it, that they will actually be able to hide away in the bunker while uh, the rest of us deal with the collapse and then just come out when it's time? There was this awful movie. I well, I don't. I think it's been out long enough. I can give a spoiler there. There was this awful movie that came out with Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill. A while back, it was called Don't Look Up, and it was basically the movie was basically about how we're all ignoring the impending collapse of the world due to climate change. And, you know, all these uh, global elites eventually find a way for themselves to, uh, you know, cryogenically freeze and get onto a spaceship and go to another planet. And then at the very end of it, they realize that, you know, it's uh, not going to work out too well for them. But the the fundamental question is that. The left doesn't seem to care all that much about them eating their own and about them eating themselves. And we've seen this in the the trans movement, for example, how radical feminism and uh, trans activists have been at war and uh, breaking down a lot of uh, traditional left-wing coalitions. But why I don't think this is as powerful as people seem to think is because the left is okay shrinking its size and concentrating its power into an ever smaller number of people. I mean, take cancel culture. Cancel culture oftentimes goes after people on the left. Cancel culture often targets people who are politically left-wing if they say something that they shouldn't have. I mean, Juan Williams, to go back many years ago on Fox News when he had just mentioned the obvious, which is that, you know, if you're sitting on a plane and you see someone with Muslim garb walking on, you're, you're going to look twice. And this is a guy who was saying it almost in a confessional way, like he was feeling bad about feeling that way. And, uh, you know, the left was fine with Juan Williams becoming just some, you know, right-winger on Fox News. The left didn't care that it lost an advocate. 
when the so-called radical feminists or the TERFs, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists, say speak up and say things like, well, I don't think that uh, transgender women with, or be penis women, as Mark would say, should be in the change room with my five-year-old daughter. The left is okay saying, well, screw you. You are just a transphobic, hatey-hater, hatey-hater, right-wing bigot. And then when these people who have been cancelled find some sort of solace or community or comfort among the right. The left will say, see, I told you so. See, they were never one of us. They, they... So at the end of it, there are only going to be a few left-wingers left, but they're going to be the ones that have all the power still. Because we've seen this is not an area that has safety in numbers. You can be part of the majority and still have no power. If you talk about the institutional problem and all of these institutions, whether they're courts or corporations or media companies or political parties, because all of these people, which are led by a small oligarchy, are the ones that still manage to have the monopoly on deciding where the Overton window is. And the reason this is so discouraging is because I think a lot of people on the right sort of assumed that these things that we see in society are indicative of a pendulum, that it's going to swing back our way after a couple of years, and we keep seeing it go further and further, and we say, okay, this is going to be the thing that brings it back. This is going to be the thing that you know brings it back to common sense. And a, a big example of that has been when we see people on the left that start making enemies of their traditional allies. And, and I've, to some extent, thought that in the past, that when the left is just slicing and dicing itself and breaking apart its coalition and turning away feminists and gay rights activists and Jewish people and, you know, anyone with a religious identity, basically, and they're saying to all these people that you aren't woke enough for us, you aren't left-wing enough, that eventually it's going to break this coalition apart to such a point that common sense can move in. And I, I don't know if there was like one turning point when I started to feel like this was no longer happening. But, but certainly by now, I don't think it's working out. And, and I do think that the explanation for that is that it's the concentration of power is that, you know, you can have a hundred left wing oligarchs that uh, decide that, oh, I don't know, 20 in their midst are no longer woke enough, but the power is still there. The 80 just divvy up the power amongst a smaller number. And when they determine that uh, 25 of them are no longer woke enough, it'll just keep going down and down. And then eventually the same power is concentrated in the hands of 55 people. So I, it, at the end of it, it could be just, you know, Jacinda Ardern and Klaus Schwab and Justin Trudeau remaining and Megan and or Harry. But I think one of them is going to get turfed at some point. But they're still going to have all that power and all that institutional control. So will where at what point does that power diffuse at what point is there are there too few people holding on to the power that they can't actually do it I, I think that's the key question and I do think George it's a very important question I, I don't know the answer to it but I do believe that they genuinely feel they will be safe in the bunkers because by and large up to this point they have been we have a, another question here. This one is some Canadian content as well. Can we talk about Pope Francis going to Canada to apologize to Indigenous peoples for abuses by Catholic missionaries? Are there uh, Catholic missionaries in Canada? Uh, are there currently Catholic missionaries in Canada 
abusing the native peoples. If any of the abusers or victims are alive today, an apology makes sense. If not, why rehash the worst elements of Catholic history? How was the Pope's visit received by Canadians? So, I mean, <laughs> purely on an amusing sidebar note, the Pope, uh, when he flew to Canada on his own plane, uh, we learned that he was exempt from Canada's mask mandate on airplanes. So everyone wanted to be on Pope Force One because they didn't need to wear a mask there like they do on, on an Air Canada flight. But on the more serious side of things, so the last year in Canada has had this very bizarre moral panic emerge where it started with one indigenous community from British Columbia that said it had done ground-penetrating radar and located this uh, whole number, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it was like 270 or something like that, unmarked graves near the site of a former residential school. And the residential schools were schools that were set up in the 1800s and, and continued into the, uh, they were, I think the, the last one was built in the 1960s. And they were schools where indigenous children were sent and, you know, oftentimes taught a very Canadian way of life that was distinct from their upbringing. They were not taught their original language. They were not taught their original customs. They were taught Catholicism. They were taught English and they were uh, pushed through this assimilation. And there has been a moral reckoning about residential schools in general over the past decade in Canada. The Conservative government under Stephen Harper had issued an official apology, and uh, there are still some survivors of these residential schools. But when people say that, they forget that the residential schools had changed a lot as they got into the, the 60s and, and, I guess, to, to a lesser extent, into the 70s. And yeah, there was example. There were examples of abuse at these schools, just as there were at a lot of other uh, religious schools that had non-indigenous pupils there. And the thing that really jarred the nation was when all of these communities were coming out and saying they had unmarked graves. And this was blown so out of proportion by Canadian media and foreign media alike. They started talking about not unmarked graves, but mass graves, which means something very specific and did not apply to the situation here. And then other indigenous communities in Canada started speaking up and saying, yeah, we have unmarked graves too. We have unmarked graves here. And it started to seem like tens of thousands of bodies of indigenous children were just being found dumped in ditches across the country which was horrific, but it wasn't actually true. A lot of these cemeteries were cemeteries that had indigenous children and adults and non-indigenous children and adults, and just over time, grave markers had vanished. They were cemeteries that were 150 years old that weren't well-maintained, but everyone knew they were there. But it started to get into this one-upsmanship game, and the media, which didn't even really understand the story, started writing about this and talking about this, and created this moral panic that got so significant that last summer, Justin Trudeau lowered the Canadian flag to half-mast indefinitely. And he kept it there over our national holiday, Canada Day. He kept it there right through the election. And it was for, I believe, over six months that the Canadian flag was viewed by our government in Canada as this thing to be ashamed of and kept at half-mast as penance. For what Canada had done. And then, of course, the government started lobbying, which is how we get back to the question here, for the Vatican to apologize and for Pope Francis to come. And he did. He came to Canada. And what do all the left-wing protesters say? Well, it's not enough. 
And there were indigenous people that did genuinely say, we welcome this and we accept this. And there were a lot of people that said, nothing is going to make it right. You can come and you can apologize and you can grovel and you can take the knee and it's not going to make a, a hill of difference. And a lot of Catholic Canadians enjoy the tour because it's the first time in quite a number of years that the pontiff has come to Canada. I'm not Catholic myself, but I can still recognize the importance of this as a matter of history. But as far as the underlying thing that triggered this, it, it didn't actually do anything. It didn't actually do anything to turn down the temperature and all of the people that thought this was just this insane uh, story that uh, needed to be told and needed to be addressed and needed to be reckoned with. And it's proof that there is no reckoning because you could turn to these people and say, what would make it better? What would make it right? And a lot of them do not have an answer, and certainly not to the Catholic Church. I mean, if you want to talk about the situation that Indigenous people in Canada face, there are lots of things that government could do, but Pope Francis can't do those. Last I checked, he did not have any authority in the Canadian government. Certainly when, I mean, the irony, and I pointed this out, when Justin Trudeau posted some glowing statement about him, Justin Trudeau has banned anyone who's pro-life from running as a liberal candidate. So it was amusing to me that he was saying all these nice things about Pope Francis, but Pope Francis wouldn't even be allowed to sit as a liberal member of parliament under Justin Trudeau in Canada. So uh, we move on from there. Uh, Jay uh, Bernie writes, I don't know if this is a uh, like a Bernard or a Bernadette, but a Bernie anyway. Any thoughts on Joe Biden's fascistic backdrop yesterday while declaring Republicans enemies of the state? Couldn't believe it wasn't photoshopped when I first saw the images. I So I actually agree with Bernie there. When I first saw this, I thought there was like some major color correction that had gone on. And I saw one video circulating on Twitter. And again, I haven't been able to authenticate it myself, but it actually made it look like CNN was adjusting the coloration in real time while they were carrying this speech because even they thought the coloration was a little bit wrong. So what happened was Joe Biden stands up and he delivers this speech in Philadelphia and he's got projected on the uh, building behind him red and blue, but behind him is red, and it's like a, a crimson, blood-like, deep, deep, bold red that looks like he's about to reach his hand into someone's heart, into someone's chest, and pull out their heart and shout, Kalima, Kalima! Like, that's how dark and just inferno-like that color looked. And there's this one shot that's going around where he's got his arms in the air and he's standing in front of the red. And again, as one Twitter commentator said, I, I quoted them earlier, it looked like some, you know, Soviet and uh, Soviet and fascist uh, got together and were uh, fiddling around with the lighting. And it was actually I, I mean, the optics aside, what he said was insane. In, I mean, and it was baffling to me that he was able to get through it. Of all the things this man fails to be able to say coherently, this one he got through. His meaning was abundantly clear. He said, equality and democracy are under assault by mega Republicans. So he says Republicans are the problem. He says these two ideas, equality and democracy, 
are the rock upon which the nation is built. And he, he's saying this while standing in front of Independence Hall, talking about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which he says that all of these things are being ripped to shreds by Republicans. And this is a midterm campaign speech, yet he had the gall to bring along uh, two Marines that were standing behind him throughout this entire speech. So he says mega forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. So Joe Biden, the man under whose watch people cannot even afford to fill up their gas tank, is getting up there and saying in what is truly a dictatorial authoritarian style of address and manner of speaking with the military flanking him that Republicans are the enemy. And again, I won't even bother to go down the road. Well, I guess I'm going down it slightly now, but it's not even worthwhile, I'll say, to go down the road of, oh, what if Trump had done? We know what would have happened if Trump did it. We know exactly, this would have been like a call to arms. He would have been impeached like seven times by Sunday if this had been Donald Trump. We know that, but Joe Biden gets a pass. Joe Biden gets a pass. And if you look at it, I mean, the lighting is just amusing at this point because it's just proof that there's no one there to say, you know, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe this isn't a great idea. There's no one in the Biden administration to do that. I mean, there was that clip a few weeks ago of uh, Joe Biden unable to put on his jacket, so Jill Biden had to step in and do it. But even Jill Biden's not saying on the big stuff, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't use the blood red lighting, or maybe you shouldn't call your political enemies uh, enemies of the state, or maybe you shouldn't uh, get the military involved in this, even though this is clearly a campaign speech. And this morning he's asked about this. He was asked if Trump voters were the problem. And he like he was so indignant about it. He's like, no, I no, I never said that. I like so he's already forgotten, which I guess is true. Joe Biden being Joe Biden. He's already forgotten what he said last night. And I don't even know if he was aware of what he was saying when he said it or if it was just in the teleprompter. And that was that. But it was an absolutely insane display. And if you look at the images, you would not believe if you hadn't seen them for yourself that this was not Photoshop, that this was not something that had been edited or colorized or, or like it just people are in disbelief about this. And I don't think you should be in disbelief. I, I think if you look at what happened, what was it, two weeks ago in Mar-a-Lago, you're seeing right now the weaponization of the state against Republicans and against Trump supporters and Trump allies. And this idea of weaponizing the state against this group is not a new thing. It's not a new phenomenon. But it is, I think, the brazenness that is worth observing here and how they don't even feel the need to hide it. They don't even feel ashamed of it because there's no reason to be. They know they get to do any and all of this with absolute impunity. And we'll talk about this in more detail a bit later on. But the one thing I, I would point out that people need to realize about this, and I'll, I'll pull up a couple of the comments here that I saw. Uh, Kaylee McEnany said it was a hellish red background. Uh, Tim Young, who's a, a political satirist, he said, I'm not saying fascism officially had its coming out party uh, in America tonight. 
I'm just saying Biden condemned his political opponents as a threat to America and democracy to a blood red background with the military standing behind him. So, yeah, take from that what you will. And I noticed that uh, some of the images are a little wide. So you see the blue there. But I like the tight shot that shows just the red and shows the Marines in plain view and Biden with his hands in the air, because that is the one that abandons any pretense of this being anything other than what it is. Uh, JB writes, what's this I see about the investigation into Trudeau's martial law plans getting postponed? So I, I'm, I'm apologizing right now if the Canadian content is a little heavy here, but if I can demystify any of this as the token Canadian guest host of the guest host of the guest host, I am happy to oblige. So uh, just last year, or I guess it was this year, Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, which is kind of the closest we have to martial law in Canada. It's not exactly military rule, but it is this law that suspends civil liberties and suspends the rule of law and allows the government to get in and, and do what it wants. So Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act not to deal with COVID, not to deal with insurrection and not to deal with an attack on Canada, but to deal with a bunch of truckers that were on his doorstep uh, talking about how they didn't like his vaccine mandates. And I wrote a book about this. You can pick up the book on Amazon or I think Barnes & Noble also has it. It's called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Shameless plug there. But uh, Justin Trudeau used this law called the Emergencies Act. Now, they've baked in all of these supposed checks and balances to the Emergencies Act, one of which is that there has to be a public inquiry. So you have to have like a Durham report, basically, within a year of the emergency expiring. So they've scheduled this inquiry and they were supposed to have public hearings starting on, I believe, September 19th or something like that, September 17th or 19th whatever the Monday is. And this morning, we found out that this has now been delayed a month. So it's going to start in October now. And the rationale for this is that the commissioner, who's a former Ontario judge, has to have some type of unplanned surgery. So he's had some medical issue come up and he has to go in for surgery. So they're going to have to start this thing a month later. And I mean, everyone now is very suspicious and skeptical. They're like, well, this is awfully convenient timing. And oh, I, how do we know uh, that this is actually real? And I mean, I look, I, I, I take the guy at his word, but I, that doesn't mean it isn't convenient for the government that they now get an extra month without anyone hearing the testimony about what actually happened and, and what went into this uh, so-called emergency that Justin Trudeau declared. And why I think that's important is because anytime we have heard someone testify about this so far, whether it's been, you know, things we've seen in court documents or people from the police agencies that have testified in Parliament that, yeah, we never asked for this thing, we never asked for the powers, we never asked the government to do all this. Anytime we have heard new information, it's made the government look bad. The government has had its narrative shattered. So if the government can manage to delay this thing and postpone this thing to closer to like December, even Christmas time when no one's paying attention, it will look very, very good if people don't pay attention to this stuff. So we aren't there yet. So far, it's just a four week postponement. It'll still be starting up at some point in October and lasting the scheduled three weeks or six weeks rather for the public hearings. But it certainly is helpful to the government when people are not hearing 
this stuff and when they now have a little bit more of a reprieve from any of this stuff being discussed. So it was interesting. So I got a tip off on this this morning from one of my contacts who's actually been called to testify on this committee. And uh, this person received a notice that, yeah, we, we've had to bump it back. And then I uh, called the uh, com- the media contact for the uh, emergency commission and said, hey, you know, I just want to confirm this is uh, legit. He said, yeah, we're sending out a release at uh, 930 tonight. So uh, being the intrepid journalist that I am, I, I put something out on the uh, website I contribute for, True North. And then they, like, sent out the press release early. So they didn't like uh, being scooped by... Uh, you know, just some lowly guest host <laughs> or something like that. Uh, John writes, why isn't Ukraine locking down schools due to war? Is it less deadly than the Wuhan flu? <laughs> That's actually quite a good question. I, I think that the one thing Ukraine has shown us, well, it's shown us a lot of things, but one of the things it has shown us is the importance of context and perspective. You know, it's like vaccine passports and masks were the most important things in the world until you still had to until you just had to start cramming Ukrainians into subway stations to avoid the shelling. And you had Ukrainians flooding into all of these countries around the world, including some with the most strict COVID regimes in the world and checking vaccine passports, making them wear masks all of a sudden not as important. So the fact that Ukrainian schools are still open, and I I presume some have closed in some of the really contentious regions that have been evacuated, but the fact that they are still trying to carry on life in as close to a normal way as possible is, I think, very telling. That life goes on has become something that the Ukrainians, through war, through being attacked and bombed and invaded by the Russians, are far more interested in doing than a lot of people in the West about a virus that has been getting less and less deadly by the day. Uh, We have another one here from Saber Mike Carroll. He writes, Andrew, read your book and thought it was fantastic. The Well, thank you. I should just uh, leave it right there. Oh, there's more. The best thing about it was that it was in no way a hagiography of the movement and was not afraid to point out the mistakes made by the organizers, uh, despite you rightly sympathizing with the truckers. A great example of what quality journalism should look like. Well done. Well, thank you very much for that, Saber Mike. That's very, very kind of you. And that book is called The Freedom Convoy. And interestingly enough, I I should share, and I may have said this on a, a previous show, I can't recall, One thing that is quite interesting to me about this book is that it was the first book about the convoy in Canada, which was a a protest that didn't just have significant and sweeping implications in Canada, but also around the world. We saw copycat protests, something I had never seen in my life before. The term Canada-style protest was appearing in media coverage about convoy copycats in Belgium, in Canberra, in Washington, D.C., I think in Auckland, or well, it's not Auckland, sorry, Wellington, they had one as well. And we had people that were inspired by what these scrappy Canadian truckers were doing. And I, I thought it was an important story to be told. And, and like uh, Saber Mike says, I, I was certainly writing it from a perspective of being sympathetic, although not sycophantic, to the truckers. And it was astonishing to me. This book became very quickly a a number one bestseller. It was number one on the bestseller list, I think, for like seven weeks or so. And it's been dethroned a little bit. We're still on the list, but it's been dethroned by a hockey book, which is, I think, uh, Canadian poetry there. But what was interesting about all of this is that this happened 
without any mainstream media attention whatsoever. The mainstream media specifically took this blackout approach to the book. They didn't write it. They didn't write about it. They didn't review it. They weren't interviewing me about it. The only interviews I've done have been like podcasts and alternative media and a couple of foreign interviews like on GB News with Mark. And I, I can't say I'm all that surprised in, in some ways, but I, but I am actually surprised because even if there were like the hostile hit job interview, I would take it because I'm fully prepared to stand by my work and, and stand by what I wrote about there. At one point, this was the one that really sort of bugged me. There was this radio host in Ottawa, which was the city that the truckers, of course, were in, who did a segment about my book. And she had some lefty reporter on to answer questions about my book because he had interviewed me on his podcast. And we had actually a, a very good conversation. But instead of having me on, she was like asking him questions like, so, so why, why did Andrew write this book? And eventually he was like, yeah, it's kind of weird uh, that you are having this conversation with me and not with him. And then she like abruptly changed the topic and went to traffic and weather or something like that. So uh, we are happy anyway that people have been interested in the book and learning about the book and finding it their own way. There's a, a link in the Q&A description if you want to check out your own copy. But to those who have read it already and people like Saber Mike who enjoyed it, thank you very much for that. Uh, there's a question here for Mark that I, normally I would just take. If someone doesn't read the top where it says it's uh, clearly not Mark hosting, but this one is like a very Mark-specific question. So I will, uh, sorry, Timothy, I'll have to skip your question and let Mark get it upon his return. Uh, Owen writes, where was that wind machine which went up in flames a few weeks ago because of zillions of gallons of petrochemicals needed to lubricate its gears? Yeah, that was, I mean, this is the interesting thing. The spontaneous combustion of the wind turbine in, uh, this was at a Cargill factory. I'm trying to remember where it was. I think it was in uh, Hull. Yeah, I think it was in Hull, if memory serves. But but this thing is, is actually quite hilarious because these things, uh, if you look at the lifespan of them, whether it's a wind turbine, a solar panel, an electric car battery, in the lifespan, they're far worse for the environment than anything they proclaim to be replacing. But uh, no one's interested in having that discussion. Robert writes, uh, Robert Bridges, that is, as a lead up to the question, FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, where well, Orwell wrote of hate as a motivator in 1984. Fear can turn to fight or flight, but hate doesn't run. The Dems playbook has changed, I think. Do you see fear or hate as the strongest sustainable force for the left going forward? I actually liked your... Well, I think that's a very good question, Robert, and I liked your preamble. Normally, I find preambles can get tricky because sometimes the, the preamble is just a, a long way of the person saying they don't actually have a question. But you have a very good preamble there that sets up the question quite nicely. I think hate is the strongest sustainable force for the left going forward. And the reason I say that is because earlier on I, I was talking about how the left doesn't really need to care about hypocrisy considerations because they genuinely are pushing for a world that only applies to the rest of us. A world with rules and limitations and restrictions that they don't have to live by. I mean, it's you can see it on a, a numerous, numerous levels. Gavin Newsom at the French Laundry and, uh, you know, Boris Johnson having his cake and eating it too. And all of these other things. These people are just uninterested in living by the rules that the rest of us 
have to live by. And I, so I don't think they need to even keep us fearful. I think all they need to do is tell us that we are the ones that have to go along with the rules and they are the ones who get to make the rules. And, and in that sense, I think it is their hatred and contempt for other people that matters far more. And let's just for a moment look at Joe Biden's speech. In another time, what he did would have been very fear-inducing. Standing with the Marines, talking about enemies of your country and enemies of democracy, doing it with the blood-red background, hands in the air, angry tone, that would have been meant to terrify people. That's like a wartime speech that you give people when you want them to be afraid. But no one is afraid of Joe Biden. I mean, people might be afraid of the future of the country, but I don't think anyone looks at Joe Biden and says, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm quivering in my boots. I think they laugh. I think we all looked at that speech last night and said, oh my goodness, what they're really reaching. They're really going for it. So we don't need to be afraid of it to still be controlled by it. And I think it is their hatred and contempt for the masses. Joe Biden's hatred of Trump voters, Justin Trudeau's hatred of the unvaccinated, Jacinda Ardern's uh, hatred of people that own firearms, Boris Johnson's you know hatred of, <laughs> well, anyone but himself. So these people don't actually care. And when they have the power, when they have the monopoly on power, they actually don't need a population that fears them or fears anything because they're in charge no matter what. And they tend to have a very good ability to keep the power in, to keep their own power and to check the, you know, peasants getting a little bit uppity. And that doesn't really seem to bother them. Uh, Wayne writes, uh, could you be so kind as to give an uninformed American a basic explanation of how Justin Trudeau became supreme dictator and why a majority of Canadians seem to like it that way? Canada appears to be roughly 10 to 20 years ahead of the USA on the road to hell. So a better understanding of JT's ascension may help me in planning for the inevitable. So, I mean, I used to always say that Europe was, you know, 10 to 20 years ahead of Canada. And now I, I think we're seeing that Canada has gotten a little bit worse than Europe. And maybe that does reaffirm the, you know, the pendulum idea here. Because what happens in the context of Europe is, is that people at least are, are somewhat engaged as citizens. We saw them responding to COVID stuff in particular in a way that for most of the pandemic, Canadians didn't. And there's a little asterisk there, of course, when you start talking about the convoy. But I think you've got two issues here. Number one, the prime minister of Canada is far more powerful in a lot of respects than the president of the United States. And like political scientists argue about this. But on paper, the power that the prime minister has is quite significant. And, you know, Justin Trudeau, he doesn't have a Congress that is holding him to account. He doesn't have a Senate that is, generally speaking, holding him to account. Sometimes they do. But he is part of the House of Commons. He is part of the so-called Congress in Canada. He is uh, the leader, the first among equals, they say. But as a prime minister, he doesn't really have anyone to tell him no. And... At the risk of getting very, like, Canadian constitutional geeky here, there was this little scandal emerging in Alberta this week where uh, they're in the midst of selecting their next premier. 
And the United Conservative Party, which is in government right now, is right now choosing a, a new leader. And one of the leader leadership candidates who's likely to win, she's a, a friend of mine, her name is Danielle Smith, she's proposed this law that would make Alberta more sovereign and, and a little bit more autonomous in Canada. She, she's called it the Alberta Sovereignty Act, and it's not about separating from the country, but it's about anything that we can do without the federal government we want to do. So it's like the ultimate states' rights bill that she's proposing. And the lieutenant governor of Alberta, who is the Queen's stand-in in the province of Alberta, who's meant to serve a ceremonial role and to basically rubber stamp legislation passed by the elected representatives, she decided earlier this week to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure if I'd sign this. I would, uh, you know, I'd start looking around and, you know, maybe check with some experts and I, I'd investigate. I'd, I'd consult some legal experts. And, you know, it's my job to be part of the checks and balances against the lawmakers. And that's actually not her job at all. Her job is to sign the damn bill and not to get involved in the politics of it. And if someone is going to raise a challenge in the court, that's fine. They can do that. But the governor general or the lieutenant governor, who is technically the representative of the head, in, head of state in Canada, is not there to serve as a check and balance against government. So by and large, Justin Trudeau is tremendously powerful. But, I mean, that only answers the structural aspect of your question, Wayne. It doesn't answer the question of why Canadians let it get that way. And, and I think there are a few reasons there. Number one, Canadians are not protesters. Canadians, by their nature, I guess by our nature, I should say, are, are not people that like to take a stand. We're not a country born of revolution. We don't have it baked into our DNA like Americans do. And Canadians, generally speaking, are a lot more trusting of authority and trusting of government. So when government gets up and says, you know, we think you should stay in your homes for the next two weeks and we think you should get your vaccine passport and we think you should get your third jab and your fourth jab and your fifth jab and all of that. Canadians just, you know, generally speaking, say, oh, OK, yeah, I guess I guess that's what we're doing. And I mentioned earlier, CDC has now acknowledged that this myocarditis risk in young boys that it dismissed as misinformation is, in fact, true. Just yesterday, there was a report in Canada that from the National Advisory Council on Immunization, so NACI, we call it, which said that boosters might be required as often as every three months. Not necessarily. They might. They might be if there's a really you know significant risk. So they're already talking in Canada about boosters every three months. I don't have the audio clip of it, but the federal health minister was speaking, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, and they said that getting vaccinated in Canada is now like charging a phone. You know, every now and then your phone dies and you're no longer protected. You need to recharge it by getting another booster. So they're talking about this constant carousel of boosters in Canada, which I think a lot of Canadians will go along with just because they're being told to. My own alma mater, Western University in London, Ontario, has said that you need to be triple vaccinated to go to school. Triple vaccinated if you want to be a professor, a student, if you want to even visit the campus. Although, interestingly enough, the policy says donors are exempted from the vaccine mandate for boosters. So if you come with a check in hand, you don't actually need to be triple vaccinated. But this CDC study on myocarditis risk, you think this would be enough to shake Western from its view on this, but they don't actually care. So Canadians are complacent. 
And that's my one sort of hope of why Americans might not go the same direction, because I don't think Americans will take what the overlords are, are doing lying down in the same way that Canadians will. Jared writes, who is your favorite person you've ever interviewed and why, of course? So this is actually rather interesting because I used to do a, a daily talk radio show and uh, even Mark, who I think is very, very tough to impress at some points, would be impressed every now and then with people that I'd interview. Like there was one time where he had I was talking to him. He's like, you, you he's like, I can't believe it. You interviewed Florence Henderson. I did shortly before she passed away. And she was a, a lovely interview. Uh, so who is my favorite I, I'm going to give two answers here, Jared. One of them is like my favorite real person that I ever interviewed. Not a celebrity, but a real person. And it was a woman who I believe her name was Kayla. And she said uh, she had done something fascinating. Her bike was stolen. She lived in British Columbia. And she went searching on, I don't know if you have it in the U.S., but she went searching on this website called Kijiji, which is like a, a Canadian version of Craigslist, where people just buy and sell, you know, whatever junk they have, or sometimes not junk. And she looked on Kijiji and found someone was buying, was selling her bike. And what she was fairly confident was her bike. So she, like, instead of calling the police, which would have taken forever and probably gone nowhere, she's like, well, why don't I just pretend I'm interested in buying it? So uh, she went and was actually prepared to buy her bike back. And then, you know, she asked the, the guy who was selling it when she realized it was her bike, do you mind if I take it for a test drive? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever, because she's, she's, you know, five foot, you know, two woman. And then she just gets on the bike and like rides it around the corner and then just like goes faster than she's ever gone before and, and rides away with it. And she was just an absolute firecracker. I love the story. I love the woman. That was really great. Uh, but as far as like celebrities, I, I, apart from Mark, I, Mark, obviously top interview. Welcome back on the show anytime. Next to Mark, of course, one really interesting one that stands out and a bit of an odd choice, I, I think, for uh, someone like me on the political right was Maya Angelou. And I interviewed her on a, a couple of occasions. One of them was very, very, um, very, very soon before she died. And I just realized, as I say, that I have a tendency of interviewing people who die shortly after, like Florence Henderson, Alan Thicke and Maya Angelou all died like, you know, 90 days after I interviewed them. But uh, but Maya Angelou, I, I interviewed her, and it was a pre-recorded interview. And she was a little bit like the first question, I, whatever I asked, I can't remember. But she was really sort of scattered with her answer, and she, she was not really making a lot of sense. And I felt like, I was like, oh, my goodness, this poor woman is, like, having a stroke or something because she would have been, I think, in her early 90s or, or late 80s at the time. And, and then she said, uh, you know, Mr. Lawton, and she was always very, very formal in my conversation with her. She said, Mr. Lawton, I was just in the garden, and I seem to have left my mind there. Would you mind calling me back in, you know, 10 minutes so I can go and, and get my mind? And it was like a very weird, a very weird phrasing and a very weird thing for a, a woman to say. And I, you know, looked at the clock and, you know, whatever time it was, I said, okay. And then in 10 minutes, I called her back, and we had a lovely, lovely chat. And at the end of it, she apologized and, and said, you know, at some point she just – you know, her, her mind, she just leaves it behind and she can't quite get it back from, from where that is. And I, I didn't think she meant physically. I hope she didn't mean physically. Uh, but she, she was and she was fine. And, and, you know, it was actually a, a very interesting experience of, of someone who clearly has that sort of artistic eccentricity, but someone who understood the importance of being present, which I think is actually uh, very valuable in something like that. So, you know, people who have done, you know, hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of interviews over the years, but she still actually cared 
about every interview she did, which uh, has certainly made that one stand out quite a bit. Let's see what else we have here. Just in our closing couple of moments, <laughs> Nancy writes, what do you think will be the next misinformation to be debunked? Well, I think it's all on schedule now. So you just have to look at whatever the last conspiracy theory was. In my own city, I live in London, Ontario, there is a giant cricket manufacturing facility that is the largest cricket manufacturing plant in the world, I think, for for farming. I, I, I don't even like the word manufacturing because they're not like they're not created. They're they're farmed. So that, but they just farming is now evil. So they don't want to admit that what they're doing is farming crickets. But it's this cricket plant in London, Ontario, which has now gotten like everyone up in arms because they're like, oh, yes, it's like Klaus Schwab telling us we will eat the bugs and all of that. But what's interesting about it is that CBC, which is Canada's state broadcaster, ran this story yesterday or two days ago about how it's a conspiracy theory to say that we are all going to be eating crickets from this facility that was bragging about being the world's largest uh, cricket facility for for human consumption. And you read the article and, and there's nothing in the article that fact checks or challenges what people looked at this and said, which is, well, hey, actually, I don't like that we are seeing more and more of a push towards human consumption of bugs. So you don't even need to now say that something is untrue to say it's a conspiracy theory. You just have to say you don't like it and you don't like the people talking about it. And that's what's happening here. So I, I think the bug eating is a bit of misinformation that's being debunked. I think some of the vaccine risks are a bit of misinformation that is being debunked. But I, I think it's all of the spinoffs of this, too. I mean, at a certain point, we will be arguing about conspiracy theory and misinformation when, you know, everything we predicted is happening in real time. That does it for us. We will have lots more Mark Stein online content over the weekend, Song of the Week, 100 Years Ago show, more of the Mark Stein show on GB News next week as well. My thanks to all of you for indulging the uh, foreign uh, interloper that I am guest hosting, but I do thank you very much for your time. Have a good weekend, everyone, and happy Labor Day. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved. Thank you.